Hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm very happy to have another episode with Dr. Mike and we've got your questions to go over and we're going to get you some really good answers. So thank you for sending these all in. I still have some from last time to cover and we've had some emailed through to me as well in addition to all the ones posted on there. So the questions are really, really good. So I don't want to skip any. I'll probably not post again and ask for questions for some time so we can get through all of these. So to start off with, we've got Bryce who is asking, he would like to know a bit more about variation within the training cycle. He's asking about inter-microcycle and then whether there's any microcycle to microcycle and then how that changes over a macro cycle, kind of messed out, missed out the mesocycle. So people who don't know microcycles normally a week of training macro cycle is kind of like could be a training year it's a long period of time then the mesocycle which wasn't included is kind of like a month of training maybe four to six weeks of training so yeah variation within mm -hmm. within training i guess that's a broad question yeah well, i can say is i can talk about the general principles behind variation and why we do it and then what constrains variation so vary for several reasons. One of them is to keep adaptive proclivity high. There is an understanding in sports science that training can develop a, a form of staleness in regards to hypertrophy. You continue to do the same movements all the time, even if you overload them with more weight, more sets, more reps. It is no longer as much of a challenge to the physiology. It's not as homeostatically disruptive. And we know that there's quite a bit of disruption that has to occur for maximum hypertrophy to occur. There's some good reason for varying uh, exercise selection, at least every now and again. In addition to that, there's fatigue management is a good reason for variation. And the idea of, of stimulus recovery adaptation. You stimulate, then you recover and adapt, then you re-stimulate. Well, a lot of times, fatigue for some systems takes a longer time to come down than fatigue for others. So while your nervous system can take a pretty big hit from a really hard workout, your muscular system might recover quite quickly, and then using a slightly less impactful workout can keep your muscular system stimulated enough to not lose mass for a couple of days while your nervous system heals for the next big workout. So that's another reason to vary itself in different ways across the different time scales: the microcycle, the metacycle, and the macrocycle. And the most, you know, the, firma, the, firma, uh, the foremost kind of variation is within the microcycle. You want to vary some exercise within the microcycle. So if you train several times a week, really hypertrophic purposes, you probably want different exercises on different days because they hit the musculature from different angles and involve different motor units. And what they do is it's, it's really kind of a, uh, you get a really cool uh, sort of um, synergistic effect or, or kind of a serendipitous effect where if you do, let's say, a lot of uh, bench pressing on one day and then Monday and on Thursday do a lot of incline pressing, your, you know, uh, kind of the lower pec fibers and the mid-pec fibers get really overloaded during the conventional flat bench press. When you hit the incline bench later, you may actually be training it quite hard and the clavicular, the upper fibers, get hit a lot. But the uh, middle fibers don't not get hit at all. They get hit a little bit, certainly enough to keep their gains and even possibly speed the recovery. And when you're benching regular the next Monday, 
the clavicular fibers might get hit to some extent, but a smaller extent. So it's kind of like at any one point, you know, you are really hitting one area and the next area is much easier and it comes up and up and up and up and up just like that. So uh, it promotes both adaptation and a proper amount of recovery so you can balance the two. So you got to kind of get a best of both worlds. So that kind of exercise variation within the microcycle is a very good idea. And then volume load variation as well. So one, uh, for example, you can train uh, your legs twice a week for just for example, and you can have a, a day on which quadriceps are really overloaded, lots of volume, lots of relative intensity. And then hamstrings are kind of just back burner to, to keep their gains. And then the next draining day, you do a lot of glute and a lot of hamstring work, but not as much quad work so that it gives your quads a, a chance to recover and adapt. And that the intramicrocycle volume intensity variation is the principle behind or the uh, kind of idea behind DUP, daily undulating periodization. This really isn't a form of periodization, it's a form of programming. It's periodization is the whole big picture. And it's a very, very good idea because if you consistently present the same stimulus, you don't allow for recovery adaptation to occur as much, especially the recovery component, and you can run into really high levels of accumulating fatigue. For example, if you do you know, five sets of five on Monday of squats, high bar, and then five sets of five on Thursday, and then five sets of five next Monday, and then five sets of five Monday after that, you're stressing that system in a, the identical way every single time. That particular part of your tendon that gets frayed that gets damaged from squatting gets damaged every single time, which after a while can get you hurt. So one of the great reasons to vary is because you don't get hurt nearly as much. You promote mm -hmm. recovery adaptation, but you're still banging away at it. So that's how you vary within the microcycle. Between mesocycles, it's probably a good idea to vary exercises somewhat altogether. I don't always recommend rotating. It's, it's actually not clear from the direct scientific literature how often exercise rotation should occur. We have a pretty good guess that if you train for longer than about three or four months with the same movement, the movement starts to decline and it starts to favor other movements. Uh, you can still make gains, but they're probably just not going to be as good because there's quite a bit of stainless built up. We also know that due to the principle of directed adaptation or the sub-principle, it's part of specificity, that if you alter your exercises every single microcycle, you don't probably make as much gain because muscles seem to retain their gains if you present consistently the same kind of stimulus over and over and over, as opposed to altering it all the time. And then there's just a lot of sort of confusion, for lack of a better term, and the muscles never really grow as much as they could. So I think that there's a kind of a golden zone of exercise variation that is either, either one, every, every, every mesocycle, every two mesocycles, or every three mesocycles. So if someone's at least varying the rep range and the volume load, I don't have a problem with two mesocycles in a row of the same exercises. What I typically do is some exercises I vary, some I don't. High bar squats make an appearance in almost all of my uh, mesocycles, but they make an appearance with different intensity ranges. They make an appearance in different parts of the workout. Sometimes they're after deadlift, sometimes they're first, sometimes they're after leg presses. So as long as you're using some kind of variation, you don't need to switch every exercise every month, but it's probably a good idea to do it every two to three for sure. So... You know, and macrocycle variation, that more should center around your goals. So you can have a macrocycle potentially of where fat loss is the number one concern, a macrocycle over muscle gain is the number one concern, but all of the minutiae of exercise uh, variables tend to, I mean, you're going to get all through all those variants anyway. There's not really a direct answer without looking to goals for what macrocycle variation should look like. Mm -hmm. And I will say this on a variation, it's possible to make 
two easy mistakes that I can think of right now to refute really quickly. One big mistake people make with variation is here's our list of exercises that are, are potentially we can do for, let's say, any muscle group. Let's say the chest. List of chest exercises. Now, the list of chest exercises that is sufficiently overloading to include in our rotation is smaller. It's only out of those chest exercises that we can choose. For example, if we have barbell bench press, dumbbell bench press, dips, weighted push-ups, chest machine. We'll just leave it at that. And then we also have BOSU ball, one arm, cable fly. That's not an overloading variant. Nobody's going to grow any fucking muscle doing that. So just because it's different doesn't mean it's good. It also has to be good. So when we're talking about the potential, when you start creating a mesocycle, which chest exercises do you use? They all have to be effective variants, which is why a lot of people say to me, for example, they say, you know, Mike, you, you seem to do a lot of hack squats, lunges, leg presses, and squats, but you don't, I don't ever see you doing leg extensions or this one weird movement or like Bulgarian split squats or whatever. This is, those exercises aren't that great. And because we know that adaptive proclivity for exercise selection rebuilds after a couple of mesocycles, like if you haven't high bar squatted after a couple of mesos, you're pretty damn fresh to that movement. Uh, we only need three or four variants for any muscle group. Five or six is great, but we only really need three or four to build effective variation within the macrocycle span. If, so you take your best five or six exercises for sure, you don't really ever have to go to any of the other ones because the other ones just aren't as effective as variants. It's like picking a cheat meal. You got pizza, you got Chinese, you got, you know, sushi. And those are your top three cheat meal foods. You have, let's say 16 cheat meals in a certain length of time. You just mostly stick to those. They're, they're your favorite foods. But if you're like, Ooh, how about Italian food? But you don't really like Italian food. You have to get so bored of everything else that Italian food starts to look good. But that's probably not going to happen because after you've had pizza and Chinese, now you're really craving sushi because it's been three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So just because those are your top choices and it's enough variation, it means you don't have to go to the worst choices. Another mistake in variation can be done in two particular ways. One, not using variation enough. Uh, some people say that you know, you need to literally run the same exercises for years to get the most effect out of them. I, they're pretty, pretty much no bodybuilder has ever trained like that, probably for good reason. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of sports scientists talk about this concept of exercise deletion and replacement. Mm -hmm. it, it, coaches figured out like something like 50 years ago that trading up exercises every now and again spurred new gains in both strength and, and muscle growth. So some people, there's a very conservative view that you just got to pound the same exercises all the time. One big thing about that is, first of all, you're not going to get your best gains. Second of all, the fatigue accumulation is going to be impressive. <laughs> and, and it comes down to this. I was talking with Ian McCarthy about this recently. If you vary the exercises, you don't have to deload as often because the variants, because they tax different parts of the muscle fiber, et cetera, can let you still train hard, but in a slightly different area of the muscle, tax a slightly different part of the tendon, slightly different uh, force uh, dynamics, and you can still train hard, but not get hurt. However, if you use the same exercise over and over and over and over, you're going to take a lot of distinct deloads because you're going to get beat up in the same exact way. So there's such a thing as way too much specificity, not enough variation. On the other hand, I think a lot of people use too much variation. That principle of direct adaptation is really important. A lot of bodybuilders will alter exercises every single week. That's probably because they're training so hard in every single session, their fatigue accumulation is really high. 
and they're using a ton of variation to make up for the fact that they're actually just training too hard. So they avoid the same movements to kind of try to wiggle around that. I don't think it pays off in the end. I think a middle ground is probably best. Is that middle ground switching exercises every month, building up good volume loads, presenting a lot of overload, and then switching? Maybe. Is it every two? Maybe. Is it every three? Maybe. And I'm not going to stick my neck out and say it's for sure one or for sure two, for sure three. I'll just be making shit up. Is it more than four months? And I really doubt it from a hypertrophy perspective. Is it, should we vary every microcycle? I really doubt it. Both of those would greatly surprise me. So that's kind of how the, the background behind variation. And, and to the individual that asked the question, um, I would say the scientific principles of strength training, but we talk plenty about hypertrophy in that book, but just a general definition of variation and how it works is you have a whole chapter, it's like 30 pages. I, I would uh, recommend that book to them because I think it really does answer a lot of questions and lets you read the stuff slowly and really give it some thought versus just hearing it on a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. That book, I highly recommend it. I recommend it to a lot of people. And anyone who's listened to the podcast and they have questions, often they are really well answered within that book already. Um, I think one point I, th I think you have spoken about before is, and you didn't just touch on it there, was using excess variation kind of within a mesocycle. So basically using all your variants at once. Mm -hmm. So like someone doing their chest day and they're doing incline, decline, uh, flat, they're doing flies, basically they use up all their variants, so then they're not kind of, they haven't got anywhere to go after that, they just continue to bash out all of these. I guess that's also something people want to avoid. Absolutely, Steve. Good catch. Yeah, I didn't mention that. that. That's another problem with too much variation. And the thing is there, and, and so what you're talking about is, okay, I have a chest you know, priority day, and then later I have like a, a mini chest more tricep day in the week. So let's say the frequency is good, but on the chest day, I do, like you said, incline, flat, decline, chest machine, and dips, and dumbbell work. Fuck it. And, and the thing is, you and I aren't making this up. This isn't one of those like scare tactics politicians use where they conjure up this unrealistic scenario and be like, well, what if aliens come down? We're not prepared for that. Be like, what the hell are you talking about? This shit happens. I mean, every Instagram video of damn near every bodybuilder, 50% of them make this mistake mm -hmm. <laughs> of just having air, the whole kitchen sink. And per any one mesocycle, that's actually a great way to train because you hit every single fucking fiber. If you got the most important show of your life coming up in a month, do it all. <laughs> if you plan on retiring afterwards, you've got nothing to save. The question you have to think about is how am I going to create variation in the next mesocycle. So you won't want to be left with this idea where you fucking used everything already. Be like, ah, I'll do dips. My body's not used to those. Just kidding, it's completely used to those. And then it's just not gonna spur the same gains. So if you completely run out of novelty, you're gonna have to suck it up for a mesocycle, reduce how many exercises you're doing, not have a very productive mesocycle because you're already used to those exercises to some extent. Just try to get stronger at them and uh, for reps. And, and then let the other exercises reset in their novelty so that you can use them again. Not a lot of foresight. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the very interesting, uh, there's, there's two types of questions that I get every now and again about how do I make gains that leave me with a bit of pause and it's kind of like a good news, bad news thing. And one of those questions is, I've been doing everything for my chest and it's not growing anymore. What should I do? you got to back off mm -hmm. so we can intelligently reprogram stuff. But if you're already doing everything, I, mean, I don't have any tricks for you. You've used all the tricks, right? Um, and, uh, and so that's one of the situations where it's, it's tough because you, the answer is you do have to back off. Another very similar one is 
I've been training what is what I think is above my MRV or very close to my MRV for a long time. What do I do back off? And they're like, but won't I lose size for a little while? You will. And then you'll gain way more of it back. But it's just one of those bitter pills that hey, you fucked up. Either you used all your variation or you trained way too hard for way too long. And, and, and now you're going to have to take one step back, three steps forward. But a lot of people psychologically very difficult to take one step back and, and uh, it can be tough. Mm-hmm. And I guess something I wanted to ask as well was because if people do their, their strict, maybe they want to squat kind of through mesocycle to mesocycle and they do it for four months by that time, they're going to have to remove it at some point for a kind of significant degree of a, a period of time. It, it has to be removed. Otherwise everyone's been there where they're stale and they're going to have to remove it for maybe, I mean, you said one or two mesocycles. Maybe they don't therefore want to have to stick to it for that period of time. And maybe it does make sense to change it every mesocycle or two so that they can bring it back in more frequently. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that that staleness really does settle in, especially for bodybuilders uh, where they don't have to squat. It's really good, but there's small variants that you can make within that as well. You don't have to do that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a conversation, as I'm sure you're aware, it was recently on, I think, Lyle's Facebook group or something like that, to which I'm not privy because he blocked me a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and his uh, one of his messengers who was engaging in discussion with me decided he no longer wanted to engage in discussion mysteriously. Um, I thought it was going quite well, <laughs> but uh, it was this idea that you got to just pick your exercises, and if you alter them you know, once a month, that's way too frequently. And I was kind of caricatured in this position of advocating this radically advanced frequency. And, and, and there's way too much, or a radically advanced variation, way too much variation. And, and, and Lyle actually in one of his little, uh, some people sent me some screenshots, and Lyle in one of his fits of rage said that, um, you know, no hypertrophy occurs in the first couple of weeks anyway, so it's stupid to do that. Now, that's a completely absurd view. It's completely wrong because if no hypertrophy occurs with weekly variations of exercises, how the hell are all the biggest people in the world varying their exercises once a week? I mean, hey, look, pharma works, but pharma won't make you 280, 5% body fat by itself. It doesn't do that. It has to be hypertrophy coming from that program. Can we say it's suboptimal? We can certainly make that claim. But I would think I was caricatured in a position of, of, of really making a very radical claim. My claim is that maybe every four to 12 weeks, you should vary your exercises. Uh, their claim is, I'm not really so sure what their claim, half those people don't even train. That's neither here nor there. But, um, uh, you know, their claim may be, you know, six months or, or 12 months or something like that of the same exercises. That's a fine claim. My claim is intermediate uh, to what is actually done. It's not extreme. Extreme mm-hmm. is you vary exercises every single like maybe not even week, like every single session, you have two test sessions a week and every single time is different. Every single time is different, but that's an extreme sense of variation. I thought my position of every month to 12 weeks of varying exercises was rather conservative, but, but apparently there's even more conservative opinions out there. I was caught, uh, to be honest, I was caught uh, unprepared for that, the justifying that because it was, holy shit, like, I thought I was the one advocating. I'm, I'm used to being the guy that says, you guys are varying too much and here's why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was just very unprepared for the accusation of, well, that's way too much variance. Holy shit, like, no one's ever said that to me before. Um, and, 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 and just to finish that topic and that little discussion, 
I think a primary fallacy there is the, the reliance on untrained, uh, untrained individual studies. But it's by no means clear that untrained individuals don't hypertrophy, by the way. And there's some recent research that says they do con considerably undergo hypertrophic adaptations within the first four to six weeks of training. But it is very well known that the nervous system does account for a lot of strength increases in the first four weeks of the program. Of a rank beginner, mm -hmm. do intermediates not hypertrophy if you alter their exercises over four weeks? Bullshit. It's make-believe. There's no evidence for that. Uh, and... and, and if we look at actual practice in the sport of bodybuilding, which is important, um, then we see that, uh, well, it, it's very difficult to justify that no hypertrophy occurs because these people are gigantic. They're the biggest people in the world. They gotta be doing something, at least not completely wrong, right? So maybe it's a fine argument to say more hypertrophy would occur if you varied less. Uh, well, that's okay. Uh, mm. I'd like to see some good evidence for that. And, and not just formal evidence, but real world evidence. Um, I think it's becoming a last a personal note because why not fuck um it's funny because uh lyle got pissed at me once and said that my recommendation of focusing largely on strength or largely on hypertrophy and not mixing the two in a mesocycle for for getting stronger is stupid because no actual strong people do that uh and if i if he ever hears this argument of mine that well no actually big people do what you say to do which is to basically never vary exercises or whatever vary them very infrequently he's going to be like well fucking retarded and i'm the guy who reads the literature and i'm smart and they're stupid and they're gigantic steroid abusing retard bodybuilders but his other argument was in reference to the fact that well you're a sports scientist asshole doctor as Rattel, or whatever for sure he would call me that <laughs> dick hole or something and, and you know all the big guy all the real strong guys don't do what you say i mean it's just kind of like and, and that's a, it's a frustrating lyle is a brilliant right mm -hmm. um always insightful I, I read his stuff whenever i get the chance i think i think, I think he's almost always correct but unfortunately he has a disagreement with someone he just loses his fucking mind and like like a femtosecond, like it just boom, like sight. And the rest of what he says is oftentimes just total nonsense. He just contradict himself, and uh, it's it's unfortunate. But I guess I wanted to address that because it was one of the situations where it was like, you know, uh, I I was made to feel like I'm the extremist in that position, in which I don't see it like that at all. So yeah, and I guess their argument was to do with the fact that like squats are, I guess they're a relatively complicated path movement pattern. So if you remove them for a month. And reintroduce them for a month, remove them for a month, reintroduce them. Every time you reintroduce them, you're just getting back used to squatting. But a lot of the variants that would be recommended wouldn't be necessarily completely removing squats. They might be slightly closer stance, slightly wider stance, just a slight variant in that it's not a huge variation. You don't forget once you've been lifting for three plus years. I mean, I don't forget how to squat. I might take me kind of a week to get back into kind of the groove. Um, if the intensity was really different, maybe like a, a longer period of time, but if the t intensity is relatively similar to what I've been doing and it's just a, another variant of a squat, I don't feel like it takes me a long time. And then just related to the neurological adaptions and that's important for strength progression, I guess there becomes a period of time where you're progressing with that movement, but that could just be neurological a lot of it because that's yeah. important for strength. And then that's, a, again, against hypertrophy, and you want to actually get rid of that efficiency at some point. 
Perhaps you know the efficiency arguments are by no means no means clear in either way. What we're what we're actually talking about here is there's a trade-off between staleness that develops with exercises used too long, and overemphasizing the novelty and never really getting any traction, any good work, any good overload, because everything is always so shocking and new. Your body just tries to make neural adaptations and perhaps doesn't even have time to develop a lot of good hypertrophy. Yeah, that's a fine point. But to make the claim that you have to grind shit out for six months at a time or a year at a time, and that changing every mesocycle or every two or three is too often, man, you're going to have to provide some extraordinary evidence for that claim because we have bodybuilders that change exercises every single microcycle that make, I don't know, the best gains on the planet. And maybe they could be getting better gains by, by keeping exercises in for longer. But that's by no means clear. And, and there is no addressing of staleness in that situation. Um, real big strong people cannot do the same exercise for a very long time because they fucking break in half after a while they have to vary the exercise because first of all it stops getting you stronger and and second of all it it uh will get you hurt right so a lot of the times the reason people make variations in training even more often than they want is because something starts beating them up too much so i think there's a middle ground there and uh, I think that middle ground was a little bit lost in that discussion. Is that middle ground closer to 12 weeks? Maybe. Is it closer to four weeks? Maybe. I think that's all pretty reasonable. Anything much longer than that or much shorter than that, it just doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, you know, and I'm always open to, you know, maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but um, I'm certainly, uh, I certainly don't see how my position is ridiculous. Uh, you know, and then the reliance on... Uh, data from completely untrained individuals to try to make a grand point about trained individuals is a junior mistake. And Lyle knows that, but he's too pissed to admit it. And if he, he's never going to fucking admit it. I don't know if you've ever seen his discussions on uh, steroids with Greg Knuckles. I mean, it was just like a gigantic where mm -hmm. he would just give Greg the opinion he thought Greg should have refute that opinion. And Greg was like, I never actually said that. And Lyle was like, you're a piece of shit. Fuck you. You're a fraud. And I was just like, all right. So, uh, not super productive, <laughs> to no. say the least. <laughs> yeah, I think at the end of the day, there is extreme approaches to take that you shouldn't take. And then there's the middle ground, which is what you've explained there. And people get good results with both. So um, people can kind of go to their preferences at that point because, I mean, adherence sure. is important. Uh, you bet. And it's just not well, clear what the correct answer is. But I don't think either one of those even more extreme positions is just clearly fucking totally wrong. You have to be a total retard yeah. to subscribe to it. Yeah. Awesome. Right. I think we did really well on that question. Let's get to the next one. So Jonathan, um, I'm going to say his last name wrong, but he came to the seminar Vermulian. <laughs> From from Wellen, maybe? Um, yeah. Um, so he's asked how to identify weak points for powerlifting. Mm. Man, you know, I've had, uh, I think I've answered this question on a couple of other podcasts and I've definitely answered it on my Facebook, okay. but um, the easiest way to identify weak points is um, to compare your assistance exercise performance to that of other lifters of similar caliber on the main lift. I think that's the first place to go because kind of like uh, – analysis <laughs> like well my back does this so it's obviously my back well it could be because your glutes don't start in the right position and then you end up relying on your back too much and your back's actually strong but your positioning's off blah 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 gets to be a little bit complicated so i think yeah. the best way to analyze weak points and then, and then how to improve them is a wholly different discussion that i've, I've talked about relatively often uh so for example 
let's say you bench 100 kilos for a max, and you close grip 95 kilos for a max, and your best friend or several of them also bench several of your friends or, or you know you look at a lot of Instagram videos for example even better because you get a huge sample you look at 20 Instagram videos of people you follow that bench about 100 kilos some bench 90 some bench 110 everything in between and you look at their assistance exercises most of them struggle to close grip bench 80 kilos you're blasting 95 can you conclude that your triceps are a weak point? Almost certainly not. Then you look at their overhead pressing. You can overhead press 60 kilos, and they overhead press 55, some guys 65, some guys 60. Okay, pretty average overhead press. It's not the front delts that are holding you back. Then you look at their chest flies and maybe their wide grip work. Your wide grip work is like 60 kilos crushes you. Your pack flies, you know, 10 kilos in each hand for sets of 10 blows you up. They're doing 15 kilos. Some of the guys are doing 20 kilos in each hand, and their wide grip work is 20 kilos above yours. You have a weak chest. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. So I think using the assistance work that more uh, better reflects some muscles than others is a real good place uh, to start. And, you know, it's one of those uh, things you can actually do that in bodybuilding too. It, it, usually bodybuilding is easy to spot weak points because you can just see them. Mm -hmm. But uh, usually it's confirmed by exercises. For example, like in my personal case, my back is like thick as fuck. Her lats could be wider. And as far as pull-ups and pull-downs, I'm just not that good at them. It's just nothing exceptional. Like, I'm okay. But it's nothing crazy. But mm -hmm. bent rows, I mean, I can fucking bent row the earth if it came down to it. So it makes sense, right? You're like, okay, that makes sense. So in bodybuilding especially, you know, weak points and stuff, it's really – you know, if you want a complete physique, especially later in your career, it's fun to train your strong points. It's not so much fun to train your weak points a lot of times. But when you look at like, okay, what am I shitty at? Probably a good idea to do that if you're advanced already. And for powerlifting, if you have weak points and you're already advanced enough to start looking at them because beginners should be worrying about weak points. They should be training everything. Intermediates should be training mostly strong points. But if you're advanced, yeah, I mean, like, you, what kind of, you know, if, you, if there's an exercise that you like watch other people do, and you're like, oh my God, like I totally suck at that exercise. That might be what's holding you back. And, mm -hmm. and that can come into program design. And a lot of times, it, once you find your weak point, it's really easy to see how it reflects itself in your lift. So guys will have great hip position, great knee position, great chest position. They'll start a deadlift, their hips shoot up, their quads lock out, and then their back does one of these question mark things where it unrounds. And then you look at back exercises, like maybe bent rows. So you've got to keep that tight back for a while. You try bent rows. Your buddies are doing bent rows with 100 kilos for reps. You try bent rows with 80 kilos, and your arms are strong enough. Like, you could pull the bar, but you start rounding over, and you can't put your position halfway through the row. you got a fucking weak back, and there's no two ways about it. So then you can do exercises that strengthen your back. Bent rows are a good idea. Some block pulls are a good idea. Stiff-legged deadlifts with a big arch are a good idea to try to get that back stronger. Mm -hmm. So I think that looking at, you know, the main point, looking at those assistance exercises related to how much other people are doing, pretty good start. Brilliant. Yeah, and I just asked because we have actually done a podcast on weaknesses, how to train for weak points in powerlifting, but I don't think we actually addressed that specific question. So I think that was re really, really good. And sorry if you covered it before, but very cool. No, no, no. We've, we've helped some new people out and uh, cemented it in some people's heads who love just listen to every single thing you say. <laughs> 
well, geez, you know, I, I hate listening to myself, so I'm, I'm glad someone listened to I done that. Cool. So we have a question from Zaffa who's asked, where do you fit overhead pressing within a hypertrophy program? If well, the front delts, I'll go ahead. He's just saying, if the front delts get enough stimulus from benching, benching sorry, the lateral delts need more specific isolation, like lateral raises, upright rows. Is an overhead press necessary? Does it provide something beneficial for a hypertrophy? It's a good question. You know, I don't think it's very necessary for most people. Um, it's, uh, Brad Schoenfeld made a post saying, you know, the dedicated front delt work is kind of absurd uh, in most cases because people have, you know, very well developed front delts from all the pressing. And people jumped on his throat for some damn reason. It was completely correct. It's an uncontroversial point. Yeah. Um, you know, so overhead pressing is uh, one of those things. Here's how I integrate it in my program. What I do is I have, you know, priority days for pushing either horizontal or vertical in the week. And one of those will be heavy tricep emphasis and one of them will be heavy chest emphasis. And it all rotates within each other. Uh, so my vertical pressing can be inclined dumbbells, inclined barbells, inclined close grip barbell, a variety of a seated overhead press or standing overhead press. So basically, I'll do standing overhead presses or seated overhead presses once every three mesocycles, maybe once every four. That's not all the time. This is by no means all the time. And, and that's any kind of overhead press. So now for me personally, my chest is so easy to train and I'm so good at overhead pressing uh, that I'll do it more often than that. But, but uh, you know, if I was the average individual, I'd spend more time training my chest and less time doing overhead work because the chest training does hit the front delts enough. So, so, so the answer to that is, I think, uh, as, as far as uh, uh, his initial kind of um, his initial suspicion that uh, you know overhead pressing isn't really super necessary, I, I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I think people make a big mistake. This is a really common mistake that's been pissing me off for like pretty much forever, and I'm glad mm -hmm. I get a chance to rant on the issue. Almost every bodybuilder's shoulder day, which is fucking stupid to have a shoulder day, but that's neither here nor there, um, starts with some kind of overhead press, like seated dumbbell dildo press, where you know you do the fucking halfway dumbbell bullshit, and you're like, oh my god, fuck shoulder day, blew me up. Um, you know, why the fuck are you starting with your strongest? point already and and guys will say they'll step on stage and they'll say you know my rear delts are a weakness and you look at their plan and it all starts with front delts what the hell is wrong with you start with rear delts so what i do when i train shoulders which i train four times a week i do usually some uh rear delt work then i usually do side delt work or just side or just rear I don't do anything else because my front delts are big enough and if my rear delts ever start to outpace my front delts holy shit, what an awesome problem to have. And bringing up front delts is, is easy. So, you know, people start their workouts with front delt uh, with some kind of press all the time. I mean, you just think that's a total fucking waste of time. You're better off starting with barrel upright rows, with face pulls, with lateral raises, with rear laterals to really give yourself that capped and rounded look, which only comes from big side delts and big rear delts and big front delts. Look, if you bench press enough, you'll have big front delts. You may be genetically weak in the front delts, and you might have to train them more, but then you're one out of every 50 people or something like that. Brilliant. Yeah, I think you answered that really well. And yeah, I completely agree with Brad, the hypertrophy expert, and everyone's disagreeing that the last, yeah, it just didn't make any sense to me either. So. Funny. Mm -hmm. Next question we have from Thomas, who emailed me. 
And it's quite a long question, but I whittled it down to basically talking about MRV and that he has a very stressful job that's many, many hours. And he's wondering whether, where he called it specifically kind of a, a mental exhaustion element of MRV, um, which I found really interesting that you brought this up because it's within the next article that you'll be reading over mine um, that hopefully you'll kind of say something similar to what I've said there. What's this question? Basically saying, can kind of life stress, work stress, impact your training MRV? 100% yes. The best athletes in the world, the Bulgarians, for example, lived in training camps coming up to big competitions where their daily responsibilities included lifting, eating, taking drugs, and getting massages. And that's it. There was no stress. Every good coach, good sports scientist will tell you to minimize external stress. Like my PhD supervisor used to say, fatigue is cumulative and the source of the fatigue is really very secondary to the magnitude of the fatigue. Mm -hmm. So absolutely stress at work can impact your training. It will lower your actual physical MRV. Did you hear me on that? Because my audio yeah. went... Great. It will lower your MRV. You got two choices. <laughs> well, some combination of two things have to be done about that. One is you have to try to make your work as little stress as possible, which a lot of times just starts up here with psychology. You know, just do a good job at work. You don't have to stress out about stuff. Stress is an ancestral, completely outdated response. It's fight or flight. It's designed for literally the jungle. It's pointless in an office building because you can't kill anyone hopefully. And you know, you can't fight them. You can't run. They don't let you come back to work. If you just run away one day, they said you probably can't work there anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, you staring at a computer screen, you got like emails to respond to <laughs> getting crazy about that. And be like, fuck, I gym from accounting. Fuck him. I hate him. Uh, you can't do any of this. There's no release. So just breathe, relax, and just do a good job and don't stress and worry because it's pointless. Outside of that kind of stress management and making sure you take some good relaxing time through the day, like at the end of the day, especially to wind down, making sure you get good sleep, do as much of that as you can, and that'll boost your MRV as much as possible. But because you have a stressful job, because you don't live on a, an island in the Bahamas and have no worries at all, your MRV from the ideal range is going to be lower. If you, if you say, I don't give a fuck, fuck stress, I'm going to train hard anyway, you're now training above your MRV, and you're going to pay for it. Stress is cumulative. And, and, and if you look and say, so what you're saying is, if I have a real job and I have a stressful situation, I can't recover from as much training and I shouldn't train as much? Yes. Mm -hmm. And people try to say, but what's a workaround? There's no workaround. Oh, wait, high doses of anabolic androgenic steroids are a workaround. <laughs> but unless you like to ruin your life and have even worse stress response and shorten your lifespan with all kinds of health problems, don't do that. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just a perfect example of a situation where here are the constraints. Do your best. Um, and, and, and this is something I think I've ranted about this before recently because it's been really getting to me. I think it's very noble and very good that people are always looking at ways of obviating problems. They're looking for the ability to put in the most minimal effort and get the most maximum result. And this is very noble, and they should keep always doing that. But when the facts of the matter are in, when your best analysis tells you, here are the constraints, continuing to try to look for little ways out of it 
is a fool's errand. At some point, you have to accept that your life isn't ideal for the development of hypertrophy, and you have to make adjustments in other areas. Otherwise, you'll pay an even worse cost, right? So it's one of those situations. Let's, it, here's a quick analogy. You're driving to the grocery store to get some really good food, and then you're going over to a business meeting. Your boss texts you, and he says, business meeting's an hour earlier than you thought. Sorry, the guy from the fucking other firm just came in early, and he's a big client. You got to come and talk to him. You're like, fuck, I need food. And you see a fast food restaurant and you know that fast food restaurant coming up in a fucking block. It's the only chance you'll get to get food. Is that ideal? No, of course not. Is that, what's the alternative? Just driving to the grocery store and losing your job? Of course not. So it doesn't matter how much you would like for the alternative to be true. There are no tricks. There are no fucking life hacks. There are no workarounds. You go to the fucking McDonald's or whatever uh, and you eat there or you get, you know, drive through stuff and, uh, you know, you bite in the burger and it squirts mayonnaise and ketchup on your fucking shirt. You know, the usual, right? So, uh, <laughs> but, but the guy knows you're seriously dedicated to eating and you show up. With <laughs> he's like, he's a bodybuilder too. He's like, damn, I know what's up. So, um, but I mean, you know, and, and a lot of times people will look at that, the equivalent of that situation in fatigue management and in, in training volume and say, but how do we work around that? We don't have a fucking teleport machine. You don't work around it. You work within the constraints that the situation gives you. So to the, uh, the writer of the email, I'm sorry for the kind of mixed news, but yeah, outside of reducing your stressors and trying to recover better, you will have to reduce how much you train if you want the best possible results. Could you be better if you trained more and could recover? Yeah, totally. But that's in an ideal world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize that because I definitely have some clients who are maybe they're at uni, so they have nights out and things. And I, I can't lie to them and tell them that it's absolutely fine and it won't impact their results at all if they get no sleep for like two nights of the week. It's definitely going to impact things. But you just have to, I think it's better being aware. And I think he'll thank you for being aware that it's meant to impact things and that there is a reason his performance isn't as good as maybe some other times when stress is high outside of kind of life stress. Totally. Awesome. So we have a nice question here. And I think I kind of spoke to you about this before. And Derek Dixon has asked, what are the best ways to track progress in bodybuilding slash hypertrophy training? Do you keep circumference measurements? Do you track PRs in the 8 to 12 rep range? Or do you just track steady weight gain um, while controlling leanness and taking photos? Yeah. You know, some of these things are things I do, but I can't rule out the, that I'm not doing the best things. I think tracking circumference is uh, a good idea. But um, it's useless within the realm of the mesocycle because your instruments aren't that precise. As you get much more advanced, it's completely useless because you don't make huge gains like that. It's going to take you two years to have a noticeable, you know, a centimeter on your biceps in two years is really good. Um, and, and you think, well, no, I can track a centimeter do you put the tape in the exact same spot every time? Do you have the exact same magnitude of pump every time? Do you have the exact same magnitude of intramuscular carbohydrate stores every time? No. So it gets really tough. Mm -hmm. If you measure your circumference every week on the same day for three or four body parts, 
it's a laborious practice, but after several months and years of data, you're going to have a very good handle on what's going on. And I think that's totally fine. The circumference doesn't obviate for fat versus muscle gains, however, and that tends to be a little bit of a problem. So like Derek said, and uh, I correctly hinted at, some kind of body composition analysis should be there as well. The mirror is a pretty good guide. You know, I have several bi uh, ab veins now, which is kind of trippy to say on camera. Mm -hmm. And, and when the ab veins start to go away, I know I'm not in such a great shape anymore. When I do a mini cut and they come back, I know I'm rocking, right? Stuff like that, you know, you'll notice markers on your physique for when you're fatter. That combined with body weight is a pretty good measurement of progress. So let's say you weigh, you know, 70 kilos and you can see all of your abs in six months you came back to the same part of your cycle. You're again at the end of the cup. You weigh 73 kilos and your abs are at least as sharp as they've ever were. You're making progress, yeah. right? And, and the important take home message about these tools to use, don't ever just use one of them. Use the mirror and the scale and maybe some circumference measurements too as a good guide. My, uh, one of my mentors actually, uh, Broderick Chavez as uh, uh, Team Evil GSP on Instagram is oh, yeah. uh, the evil genius, right? And he really is a fucking genius. Um, Broderick's watching this. Broderick, fuck you. It's all <laughs> hopefully inside joke. But um, um, in any case, he lives actually pretty close to me, so he's going to come kick my ass if he hears this. <laughs> um, so Broderick is a really big fan of skinfold measurements, just taken at one or two sites, like an abdominal skinfold. You can buy a skinfold caliber by yourself. If you take it in the exact same spot, like right next to your belly button, you take skin fold twice a week, every week of your entire progression. It takes like literally five seconds. You just write down the number of millimeters. That's a pretty good tracker of body fat. It doesn't tell you what body fat percent you are because of your deposition to differences. Some people store a lot of fat in their legs, a lot in their lower back, a lot in their love handles and dick in their abs. They're going to say, great, I'm 5% fat. No, you're not, motherfucker. You're 12% fat. But it's a five millimeter skin fold. When you're up at eight millimeters, you know you're getting fatter than usual. When you're down to three millimeters, you know you're later than usual. Yep. So if you weigh 100 kilos and your skin fold is lower than it ever was, and the last time it was that low was 95 kilos, you're making progress. There's no other way around that. You're making progress. And it takes some honesty to make sure you're doing it in the right place and not bullshitting yourself. But if you do it relatively often, you can only lie to yourself so much, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another good method to try. And, and I saved the best for last. Repetitions of 6 to 15. It's a big range, but it depends on fiber type, et cetera, exercise. With a certain weight or a certain rep number, let's say 10, and how much weight you could do for that on the compound basics is a fucking phenomenal progress for hypertrophy. If you get stronger for your 1RM, there's ways to neurologically tweak that. Your nervous system can continue to get stronger in 1RMs for a long time. And if you do one around training all the time, it doesn't actually hypertrophy you much. Uh, the body's adaptation to very high resistance, low time interval uh, forces is, is actually not really hypertrophy. It's mostly nervous system adaptation. So if your one RM goes up, you could just be very well practiced. And that's mm -hmm. not a very good gauge of, of how jacked you are. If your 12 RM goes up, after several months of getting used to the exercise, there's nothing more the nervous system can help you with. It's pure size. You're either bigger or you're not. You can look at this velodrome cyclists, for example. They're, they're in that lactic acid accumulation range. They're in that high volume range. Their legs are fucking enormous. 
you can't nerve a system your way into winning a fucking velodrome cycling match. At some point, to just produce that much fucking repetitive energy, you need big muscles, period. So if you used to squat 150 kilos for sets of 10 or a max set of 10, and then later you squat 170 or 180 for a set of 10, there's no trick. As long as you're already well-trained, you got bigger. There's no way around that. So for example, if you want to drop a weight class and still have the same one rep maxes, that's sometimes kind of possible because your nervous system can come up. But if you're doing something where, you know, it's sets of 10 and, and you're like, okay, I'm going to drop down 20 kilos and still do that sets of 10, people are going to be like, that's not going to work, man. You need to be fucking big to do that, which is like strong, man. A lot of lifting for reps. Who are the best strongmen in the world? They literally weigh 190 kilos, 200 kilos. It takes that much muscle to do sets of 10. So how do I know my back's the biggest it's ever been? Photos, details in my back at a certain body weight. And also last, just uh, like earlier this year, I bent rode the um, oh, 315, 145 kilos, I think, around 145. Um, I uh, bent rode that for four sets of 10. Strict, and, and I'll say something about strict in just a second. There's no way any other version of me ever could have done that. That's not like a lucky day. That's like way outside of anything I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And because the nervous system adaptations are already on the money for years, it's just size at that point. There's no way someone, if you told me, hey, Mike, you know, are you going to bent row, you know, uh, 155 kilos for sets of 10? My response to you would be like, if that ever happens, when that happens, I'm going to have a big fucking back. <laughs> I'm going to have to have a bigger back. So tracking for reps is a real good idea. Real good idea. So don't worry about singles too much. Like if you're 10 reps, if you want big ass side delts and your upright row sets of 10 haven't gone up in months, you don't reliably have bigger side delts because when you do have bigger side delts, you can upright roll a lot. It's just the way it works, especially for reps. Strictness. It's real easy once people figure out that rep strength correlates to size for them to try to get some real funky business with their technique so that they can pretend they got bigger. It has to be strict. When you constrict technique your way to more reps, you're bigger and you're stronger, and there's no lying to yourself. But if you look back at a shoulder press set and be like, I usually touch my clavicle, but this time I came a little bit high in a couple, but oh, I'm probably still bigger, probably. Do you wanna walk around the rest of the day thinking you're probably still bigger? Or do you want the harsh reality that you're not bigger and you need to make the adjustment? Because you have two choices. One, realize or pretend that you actually got bigger when clearly you, there's no evidence for that and continue doing the same stuff that hasn't been working or swallow the bitter pill and understand that what you've been doing hasn't been working, reevaluate your plan. And then more than likely you'll be on to better gains, right? People say, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. But if it's broke, fix it. And if you don't detect how broken it is by lying to yourself, by wigging, you know, little partial reps here, not going as deep in the, can in the squat, um, you're lying, then you're lying to yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so, so all of these methods require quite a bit of honesty. Uh, outside of body weight, that should just you step on the scale. There it is, right? So uh, always track your body weight. You can track body fat and, and circumference. That's totally cool. But your, uh, for me, are what, what are indispensable? Body weight. My camera's reversed. Body weight, leanness, or how you look in the mirror, and rep strength. If your body weight's going up, 
you're not super fat and your rep strength is going up, you're getting jacked and there's no two ways about it. If one of those isn't adding up, you might be getting jacked. Uh, maybe not. If two of those are adding up, you're not getting jacked. Cool. What do you think about that? No, yeah, I like that. And I think it's something I have found difficult myself and people might be able to relate to this. So I think it might be interesting is that I haven't been able to squat for a decent amount of time. And so my actual squat strength, I'm not even sure where it would be right now because I haven't been able to maximally push that element of my training. And so it gets kind of at times you get worrisome that it, I haven't gained, but then, like you said, you take other pictures. And recently I had a, a look at my mini cup from last year compared to this year, looked at the level of leanness and the body weight. And I was a good kind of six pounds heavier. And I remember tagging you on Facebook and it's having that tracking. And I think people don't take, people feel narcissistic sometimes for taking photos of themselves. But I mean, we both do it all the time. It's part of our social presence and things, but it's actually helpful for us as well. Like I take them and put them out there so that kind of, it keeps me accountable as well. You bet. One thing you don't want, and I've had this happen every now and again, is you take a picture you don't even share it to Instagram because you're like, I look like shit. <laughs> like the least often, the less often that happens, the more you are in the right track. And sometimes you don't have to keep formal track of stuff. Sometimes you just know, yeah. like after this last cut, when I started remassing again, and it still happens all the time. Like there's been several times when, you know, that last picture I posted, which is me looking like a superhero or something. <laughs> when I was in the locker room to take those series of pictures, the reason I took the series of pictures is because I had trained in that same gym uh, like a week before and I walked by on my way to take a shower by that mirror and I was like, what the fuck? Like I ran out of room on my body for more muscle. It was great lighting and I was just like, I never in my life look like this. And I look, mm -hmm. I look back at some older pictures and I was like, this person looks untrained. If you look back at older pictures and you think, man, I looked great and you look at pictures now and you're like, mm, I don't know. You got some serious reevaluating to do. So in the long term, years, you can just tell. You can just tell, and there's no question to be asked. Over months, et cetera, rep tracking, et cetera, et cetera, the formal stuff, really, really good idea. I and I also just want to add that I think some people need to really take home the message of solid technique in that I know a lot of my clients, and I know a lot of people who maybe they haven't actually got stronger, but their form is so much better, as in like range of motion, time under tension they're not bouncing things and that as well as an indicator of progression absolutely absolutely and you see that stuff all the time you know uh, i used to do and i remember i did like quarter squats with 675 675 pounds for a set of nine and the day after my knees hurt nothing else hurt and i was like that was dumb and they never did that shit again i've never squatted that much since then but i've done stuff in the mid 400s full pauses slow eccentrics to where you really just have to ask yourself the question could, a, could you a year from now with that strict of technique do that? If me from three years from now walked in on a guy in the gym doing, what is it, what did I do? Like 420 pounds uh, or 430 I did for four sets of eight, uh, slow eccentric full pause squats. Yeah. If I saw that, I'd be like, fuck. And somebody would be like, can you do that? I'd be like, nah, I don't think so. And that, that guy's fucking jacked. That's a really good sign, right? If you, and that's why it's cool to track PRs and, and make sure you have a structure to your training because if you're always fucking with your technique, if you never track anything, you know, like you see bodybuilder workouts where it's like, they just keep adding plates to the bar. They don't count anything. You don't write anything down. Yeah. How the fuck do you know you're getting bigger? How the fuck do you know that? How do you know you're getting stronger? You don't. And how do you know how to program stuff later? You know, well, I leg pressed a thousand for eight reps, but it was like down halfway 
And then later you like find out your technique sucks or somebody makes you go lower. And now you're like pressing 700 again. What do you tell yourself? But if you always have really good technique over the years, it really is something that can stay really consistent. And do you think on that element of the people who don't track things formally, do you think there's potentially the fact that they always push hard and that they are maybe not tracking it formally, but because they're always giving their body a, a, a big stress, they can still progress. And maybe kind of if you don't formally track things like the tooth and nail, as long as you're providing your body enough fatigue and you're feeling as it is difficult, is that can that still provide the body kind of enough stimulus to progress? Absolutely. As long as you're training hard, tracking is secondary. But guys who track might be able to score a couple of places higher at a bodybuilding show than guys who don't. Might be able to score 30, you know, maybe 15 kilos more on the platform and powerlifting. I mean, is 15 kilos a different lifter? No. But he's the winner and you've got a third place medal and you want to fucking throw it out in the street. So tracking helps. It's not everything. Training hard is most of it. But if you want to train your hardest in the most systematic manner and have the assurance that what you're doing is working at the best that you can be, track. Mm -hmm. And there's another, just to beat this one to death, I've got one other way I'm thinking. Volume PRs. So being able to do a weight with a certain number of sets and a certain number of reps that you haven't been able to do, would that be an indicator of progression? Effectively, I guess your MRV is bigger. Absolutely. And, and, you know, especially that certain amount of weight for a certain number of sets and reps, like you may be able to have squatted 180 kilos for a set of 10 before. And then after it would have been like a set of six and a set of three, and then you, uh, you know, you completely degrade. But if you can do 180 for four sets of 10, six or eight months later, you're stronger, you're probably bigger. Because if you can handle more volume and keep the intensity, then, I mean, there's just no other way around it. You're gonna, you're just better. And, and yeah. likely, it's very likely size related, absolutely. Cool. We've got time for one more question. Cool, I just had to plug my phone in to charge it. Oh, so okay. Sorry about the angle differences. No worries. Um, All right, hit me. Cool, last one. So we've got Rod from New York. And he's asked for you to talk about recovery protocols aside from sleep and good nutrition. What are your thoughts on uh, chirotherapy, steam rooms, ice, bar, ice baths, um, the, uh, what's it called? He's said bulbs, what Michael Phelps used, but it was the suction. Yeah, yeah. Suction's called. fucking stupid. We can just cover that one really quick. It's fucking yeah. ridiculous. Um, Pre-scientific. Uh, I don't know what the fuck it does. Um, I'll be very surprised if it did anything beneficial. I certainly wouldn't put stock into it. Um, with ice and heat, is a trade-off. Ice and heat tend to reduce the inflammatory processes. Inflammatory processes do two things. They cause additional fatigue, so bring with them adaptation. There's some good idea to think that inflammation is a symptom of the adaptive process. It's uh, a best analogy would be like, you know, after a hurricane, you get a skyscraper and uh, the windows have been broken a bit, the paint is chipped off. If you invite a crew of workers in to replace the windows, you can't have workers in the office at the same time because the fucking the windows are open, right? There's 50 mile an hour winds going through the office. You can't, there's no papers. The printer's going to fall over. So 
the, the workers to fix the windows are kind of the inflammatory process. They make shit temporarily less workable, but in the long term, they make the windows better, they fix the paint, and the skyscraper adapts its better for that. If you have a hurricane and you don't invite the workers in, you still have sort of functioning windows, and because the workers never come in, your skyscraper doesn't get at any worse, okay? But it won't make the adaptations. So inflammation, you know, tends to be pretty critical to recovery and adaptation processes. If you're peaking for something, if you're very close to peaking and you need to perform at these workouts, yeah. these last couple of workouts, or if you need to perform at the meet, doing heat and ice, if you're too sore or too fucked up, can be a big advantage. It really can. Because you're saying, look, I just, I'm already strong enough. I just need to be on. And I yeah. can't be carrying this fatigue. Fatigue is a cool trade-off if it makes you better. But if you, you don't have any time for that stuff, then, um, then it's really a bad deal, right? Mm -hmm. So for peaking, fine. For regular training, especially for hypertrophy, I would stay away from icing. I would stay away from heating. Um, I would just stick to sleep, food, and stress management. Cool. Make sure you're relaxed, uh, uh, program design, having light days, recovery sessions, stuff like that, doing a little bit of cardio. Uh, that's the good stuff. Chiropractic. I don't know what to say about chiropractic. Uh, some chiropractors are good doctors and they help you. Mm -hmm. A lot of chiropractors are playing make-believe. They think they can cure the common cold with cracking your neck. Um, it feels good sometimes. I, I literally know people personally that have been injured by chiropractors. Wow. Um, so the fact chiropractic recover, it doesn't, it doesn't recover you at all. I would put that into the, the camp of injury control, injury management, yeah. which isn't the same thing as recovery. And, and I would call chiropractic mostly questionable. And uh, if it does offer some advantages, it's a very minority of chiropractors. Most of the chiropractic profession is unfortunately unscientific. Awesome. No, I think you answered that question really well. And I am going to hold back on the other questions. We've still got plenty to get through another time, um, but we don't want to keep everyone here too long. Don't want to keep Mike here too long. So yeah, thank you very much for answering all those, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I can't wait to answer some more uh, within the next couple of weeks. Sweet. So cheers, guys. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you soon. Take care.